your face. I'm joined by Dennis Altman, academic and uh, author, to talk about The Voice. Dennis, welcome back to the show. It's nice to be back on. Dennis, you've been an activist in the LGBTIQ space for, for decades. What parallels can we draw between the campaign around marriage equality and uh, the campaign around The Voice? Um, you know, two things come to mind straight away. First of all, this is um, the whole country voting on the rights of a particular and historically disenfranchised minority. And I think that anyone who opposes the voice needs to explain how they can be against something that the majority of Indigenous Australians in poll after poll have been shown to support. Um, The Uluru Statement has very broad Indigenous support, just as the marriage vote had very broad support. But having said that, there is a difference. And the difference, I mean, there's obviously constitutional differences. This is a constitutional change, not just a plebiscite. But the thing that strikes me that is so difficult this time is that there are some Indigenous people who have been very prominent in opposing the voice. Now, when we had the marriage debate, people like me who were deeply sceptical about marriage still supported the yes campaign because we understood getting a yes vote was crucial. Sadly, that isn't the case. I think there are... I'm not going to name them, but I think that on both the left and the right, there are Indigenous leaders who are using their own personal aims and personal ambitions uh, to ignore the will of what the majority of their community want. All that considered, and considering the negativity and the scaremongering by the No campaign, do you think the Yes vote will fail? I am... I wish I could be optimistic, James. I can't be. I think that um, one of the sad things that we should have learned by now is that public opinion polls are usually reasonably accurate and the polls are showing a declining support for The Voice. Um, I think it would take something quite extraordinary to swing that around. Um, and I wish I could imagine what that is, but to be honest, I can't. Yes, a poll I read this week had 54 no, 46 yes. Going into kind of an election campaign to draw that parallel, that would be very hard to make up that gap. Very hard. Look, I think that what might happen, and the one place where one can be perhaps slightly optimistic, is that a number of people who are unsure will either not bother to vote or will turn up and effectively cast uh, an abstention, which would just mean they'll turn up, cross their name off the roll and put in a blank ballot paper. I think that is possible. Dennis, why is the voice so important? Look, I think that we have waited a very long time much longer than other colonial societies to actually make some real attempt to reckon with the reality of the dispossession of the original inhabitants of the country. Um, This is something that has been developed now over a long period of time that culminated uh, a few years ago in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is a quite remarkable document and which people who are hesitating should read before they start telling us how terrible the voice is. Um, It's, I think, 
The sad thing to me is that the possibility of losing this means that we are going to undo a long period in which a large number of people, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, have struggled to find a meaningful way of accepting Australia's history. Um, and we've been given an opportunity. I think the Prime Minister is quite right when he says this is a gracious invitation from the original inhabitants of Australia uh, to come to terms with dispossession and to move forward. Absolutely. What do you make of Peter Dutton saying, oh, yeah, there should be a second referendum? I mean, it seems a bit rich when you've got him so vehemently opposed to the first. It seems like he's just playing politics. I think that Peter Dutton is, um, yeah, he's all over the place. It makes no sense. I mean, first of all, uh, he's basically saying we'll have a referendum that acknowledges there is a problem, but we won't put anything in the Constitution that might address the problem. Um, it's the height of hypocrisy. But, you know, Peter Dutton has form, and I'm very reluctant to call people racist. I think there are many people who have reservations about the voice who are probably not racist. But Peter Dutton sadly does have a history that makes one very suspicious. Um, this is the man we would all remember in Melbourne who told us several state elections ago that we were too scared to go out to dinner because of African gangs. Now, James, I don't think either you or I changed our dinner plans because of our fear of African gangs. And it's worth remembering that before we take anything Peter Dutton says on The Voice too seriously. Do you think his motivation is all about weakening the Prime Minister's authority? If The Voice fails, it's a diminished Anthony Albanese, um, and therefore that in Peter Dutton's eyes, gives him more likelihoods of a win at the next election or, you know, a reduced uh, government's uh, capacity numbers? Um, I think it's a reflection of the centre of gravity in the coalition. Remember, Peter Dutton comes from Queensland and before the Liberal Party took a position, the Nationals had already come out against the voice. And, of course, in Queensland, the Liberals and Nationals sit together in this rather strange alliance. Um, the Liberal Party now is a far more conservative party than it was under previous leaders, um, mainly, of course, because the great majority of urban seats in Australia are now held either by Labor or by independents. And so I think Dutton is both reflecting his own personal views, I think in that sense... You know, you can be nasty and sincere, and he may well be nasty and sincere. Unlike Scott Morrison, I think, was always nasty and insincere. But I think he's also measuring up what his party room is telling him. And we only know of three or four uh, members of the Federal Liberal Party who are prepared to publicly say they support the voice. Uh, one of whom, of course, very nobly, Julian Lester, stepped down from the shadow cabinet so he could make that statement. What are your thoughts on the consequences for the country if the voice fails? I mean, Marcia Langdon's talked about how it would, you know, open the floodgates for, I guess, you know, derogatory comments to 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 thrive and undermining of Indigenous activism in a progressive space um, and that we will see a decline in the public discourse on Indigenous issues in Australia. It'll be, you know, a, a, an invitation for racists to be more outspoken. Um, do you share that view? 
I certainly feel Marsha's pain, and I think, you know, uh, I I read the reports of her speech, and clearly uh, it was showing huge stress, and I understand that. And I I would just ask listeners who are queer to imagine what it would have been like if the marriage vote had failed. Um, I I do want to say, by the way, James, there are a couple of people on my Facebook who identify as queer who are opposing the voice, and I just hope that some of them are listening and that they actually think what they would have felt like if that plebiscite had come out with a no. Um, I think Marsha's... I don't know. I think it will probably lead to a rise in radical Indigenous feeling. I think there will be a lot of young Indigenous Australians who will not unsurprisingly say the system has so failed us We have to turn to alternative means. I think also, and I don't know that she did talk about this, um, but Julie Bishop, the former foreign minister and a liberal, has talked about this. The impact on Australia's standing globally will be enormous. A no vote will undo a year's work by the Albanese government to repair relations in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. Uh, And the fact that the liberal spokesman on foreign policy, Simon Birmingham, that although he clearly is uncomfortable with the position, he's not willing to say so. Um, But I'm sure Simon Birmingham actually understands that in terms of foreign policy, a no vote is a disaster. And, of course, there's impacts there on on economics, isn't there? Like, you know, it's not good for the economy for Australia's standing to, to slip, as well as all of the, you know, potential gains that would be lost because the voice has failed. And, you know, I mean, you talked before about bridging the gap, lower life expectancy, poorer mental health and physical health outcomes for Indigenous communities. The economic cost of that is huge. Um. Then that's much harder to evaluate. I mean, I think we have to be honest and say we have no way of knowing how effective the voice will be. Um, I think that most of us feel it is clearly preferable to have people involved in making the decisions that affect them and their community. And that's essentially all the voice is asking for. But we can't give dollar figures to this. We can't know how effective or how fast the voice could be, um, in that sense, I'd be be more wary. I think what we can be sure of is that the demoralisation, both in the Indigenous community, but also among the millions of Australians who are out there pushing for a yes vote, that demoralisation, I think, will be very hard to live with. And I think that will have consequences that... almost impossible to calculate. Uh, This is a really significant vote. I mean, it's a much more meaningful vote for most of us um, than the marriage vote was, let's be honest. Um, Nobody's life was going to be fundamentally changed by being legally able to marry. I know people will get angry if I say that, but I'm trying to draw the contrast between the consequences of, as you say, the incredible gap between Indigenous and the rest of Australia to get people to understand just how important this issue is. What should the Albanese government do if the voice fails? I mean, obviously, they can still have an advisory body. It just won't be in the Constitution. Uh, 
Yes, but I think that they would be very cautious. I mean, I think they have quite correctly said they can they want to follow the spirit of the Uluru Statement. And I would be surprised if they rush into legislation. Um, what they may do, and look, I have no way of knowing this. I, I assume that there is planning going on. One hopes they have a plan B. Um, I would imagine they would come back uh, with some set of recommendations uh, which they would take to the next election. Um, I'd also say, of course, that if the voice fails, that probably ends the debate about Australia becoming a republic for the next decade or so. Uh, no government, whatever they, their personal beliefs are, is going to risk another referendum in the near future if this one fails. So anyone out there who would like to see a change, or who, who has doubts about whether Charles III should be the legitimate head of state of Australia, um, should realise that it's much less likely that we'll change that if the voice vote goes down. And I wonder how much of that is is motivating Peter Dutton. You know, to what extent is the voice, you know, a proxy war over the Republic? I don't think it is. I, look, I think what's happening with Peter Dutton is just a reflection of what's happened to the Liberal Party. Um, and Peter Dutton, I think, um, reflects, and this is very unfortunate, but I think he reflects the majority feeling within his party. I think it's telling that John Pesuto, the Liberal leader in Victoria, who until now has tried to position himself as a moderate, and of course, uh, was willing to take a lot of flack in standing up for trans people in Victoria. I think it's very interesting that he's come out now in favour of no. And I can only assume he's done that because he can read the feeling in a party that is becoming increasingly uh, right-wing, reactionary and unrepresentative of the majority of the country. So I, I think with Dutton, as I said before, I think there's an element in which he probably genuinely um, believes, uh, has doubts. And I think there's also a large element of political pragmatism, which doesn't surprise me, for from a liberal politician from Queensland. So this liberal is... no longer means progressive in any sense, unfortunately. It's pretty, you know, it's 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 terrible, isn't it, that their own culture war within the Liberal Party, you know, um, is being used uh, on such an important issue for Indigenous Australians and for the country as a whole. Well, uh, Maurice Payne, the former Foreign Minister, has today announced her retirement from the Senate. Now, I am hoping, but not without, with much optimism, that Maurice Payne will use the opportunity to say she's standing down and she supports the voice. I mean, the only thing really that will change the political equation is for more people on the conservative side of politics. Uh, people like that wonderful, the only liberal I can admire at the moment, I think, in Australia, uh, Bridget Archer, the independently-minded liberal member for Bass in Tasmania, uh, has come out in favour of The Voice. Uh, a couple of other Liberal backbenchers have come out in favour of The Voice. Um, I would, you know, I still have this vague hope that Maurice Payne's resignation from the Senate may mean that she is about 
to do the same thing. Um, and maybe that will give courage to a couple of others. Uh, and that in turn could start to swing some of the doubtful votes around, although I'm not all that optimistic of it. Dennis Altman, always great to hear your insights on 3CR. Thanks for your time this afternoon. Good to talk to you, James. Dennis Altman there. Here's Paul Simon. This track's called Homeless.
Paul Simon there, homeless. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I'm absolutely delighted to have Tara Suwamba from the Q Plus Law Legal Centre here in the studio. Welcome to 3CR. Hi, hi James. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting. It's an LGBTIQA plus peer-led legal service here in Victoria, uh, based at the Pride Centre. And you were saying off mic, you've helped 90 people already since you opened uh, at the end of June. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, an Australian first. Uh, so it's a peer-led um, community legal centre specifically for the LGBT. QIA plus community. Uh, so you just have to be part of the community um, to qualify for assistance, obviously Victoria based as well. Um, yeah. And then you'll get assistance from people who are queer as well. Um, yeah. So we opened, I think we had sort of a soft unofficial opening um, at the end of June and we had our proper launch on Wednesday. And at the time of our proper launch, we already had 90 clients. So <laughs> there's been a yeah strong community need for it. And what are people presenting with? Like of those 90 clients, what are the most common issues? Very, very broad. Uh, so one of the things that I love about the queer community is how diverse it is. Um, but it means that, I guess, our laws and um, regulations affect each person really different and uh, in really unique ways. Uh, some of the most common things we're probably seeing is um, discrimination. So that is in employment, um, in healthcare, uh, across all different sectors. Um, we've got quite a few family violence and family law matters. Um, a few tenancy issues, some NDIS stuff, uh, consumer law things. Um, yeah, it's so broad. Uh, a lot of name changes, I think, as well for um, trans and gender non-conforming individuals. Uh, but basically, any any issue a queer person will um, can possibly experience will will take on. I love the fact it's it's peer led and that you really talk about that. That must be like just you know the, the clients just must go, oh great another queer person. Yeah, I, I get that a lot. People seem just absolutely relieved to not have to explain sexuality or gender to the person that um, you're dealing with, especially, you know, when someone's going through a legal issue. Um, it's some of the most stressful experiences of their lives. The last thing you want to do is talk to your lawyer about some um, domestic violence you might be experiencing and have them react to a same-sex partnership or not quite understand the relationship dynamics. Um, so it just relieves community members from having to explain really intricate parts of their identity and who they are um, to their lawyer on top of educating them, you know, before getting assistance. So I've had a lot of people just be really relieved Um feel very respected uh, and it's great for gaining trust and working together to resolve issues. And that's potentially life-saving, isn't it? Like, you know, having a peer-led service must mean that prob probably people are going to come forward and get that legal help, whereas if your service didn't exist, they perhaps would be more likely not to. And that could really, really be a very unhealthy situation for them. Yeah, so that's right. So um, there was a study done recently which showed that um, – people who are community members of the LGBTQIA plus community are much less likely to seek legal assistance and support than their um, non-queer counterparts. Uh, not really sure why. I mean, I can definitely speculate. Um, I think there's a lot of community trauma 
uh, with our community. I don't know that the trust is necessarily there. I mean, in um, the space of my lifetime, and I like to think I'm still pretty young, um, I've seen a plebiscite. Um, I think when I was born, it was still... um, sodomy was still criminalized in Victoria. Like there's a lot of um, stuff that our community has had to endure not that long ago. Um, So we're hoping that by creating a safe entry point into the legal system um, that queer people will actually get the support that they deserve and um, yet will have their issues dealt with adequately. And what an entry point to get data about what our community's needs are with the legal system by having a specialist service, data that would never be recorded possibly if you guys didn't exist. Yeah, that's right. So I think that's why we're taking such a broad approach at the moment. There really isn't a lot of information available before we made the service about what exactly queer people were presenting with, what type of legal issues. So taking this sort of broader service where we're letting the community um, determine where we grow our service um, is a really responsive way to make sure that we're we're meeting our core purpose, which is to serve the community first. So um, example of that is immigration law, immigration law is a big issue for a lot of queer people. Um, There's not a lot of community legal centres that do immigration. So one thing we're looking at is potentially um, upskilling with some private law, uh, sorry, private law counterparts. Um, So they'll upskill us on immigration law and then we can provide that service to the community. So yeah, getting the data, understanding where the resources need to go um, is a big part of setting up the service at the moment. And it sounds like you're really using a community development approach with the service and it's a great juxtaposition of organisations involved, isn't it? I mean, you're based at the Pride Centre and um, it's a project of Fitzroy Legal Service and Queer Space. So legal and community assistance really coming together at an iconic and accessible building for our community. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, we're lucky enough to have the expertise of both Queer Space and Fitzroy Legal Service um, in establishing our service. Um, And I mean, Fitzroy Legal Service has been around for over 50 years. They offer all different types of law. Um, There's some real giants that we get to just hop on their shoulders. Um, We're also working with Your Community Health, which is... um, they do like a trans and gender uh, diverse um, healthcare program. So we're working with them to try and um, make it as simple as possible for queer people to access the service um, and and receive assistance. So yeah, just across statewide, so using the medical channels that are already existing um, to connect with clients all over the place. To what extent will Q plus law be providing kind of information that's useful for law reform, for advocacy around that? Yeah, so we've um, started already doing some of that work, actually. Um, I think there's lots of bigger policy issues around for queer people um, and I think lots of concerns um, that things will change or that that laws might come back in particular. um, I would say healthcare for Uh, transgender children um, is a really topical issue at the moment and even though it's not um, part of the family court's spectrum of cases at the moment that I think there's a lot of community concern that 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 it might be Um, so we look at those broader issues um, and we'll make submissions when they're appropriate Um, so yeah so we're we're, it's a little bit difficult with um, 
strategic litigation, I think is sort of what you're hinting at, um, because you sort of need the right client at the right time to make big systemic changes, but it's definitely part of the scope of our service. We're always looking at things like that, looking at ways in which family law will impact um, certain types of family units and dynamics and trying to see if there's ways in which we can improve um, beyond just the individual at the time. And I imagine because you're seeing quite a few clients who have been discriminated against that the information that you're gathering will be really useful for the government in its development of anti-vilification legislation here in Victoria. Yeah, we we really hope so. So, um, yeah, there have been a call for those submissions at the moment. Uh, so that's something that we're working on at yeah, today, actually. We're working really? on it today. Yeah. yeah, we're having a read of some of the um, submissions and exactly what we want it to say. And yeah, so it's a, lots of moving parts, um, but it's definitely something that we're interested in doing. And of course, we've just had the release of the Fueling Hate report that's looking at, you know, violence and harassment towards the trans community. I imagine you're hearing a bit about that at your service. Yeah, yeah, we definitely are. Um, it's difficult because there is uh, a gap between, I guess, things that are legal issues and things that are uncomfortable beliefs that other people hold. So it's trying to narrow down what issues are legal issues um, and what issues maybe the law can improve to protect um, and looking at it through that angle. But, yeah, it is, um, it's definitely concerning uh, some of the stuff that we're seeing at the moment – but um, we're here to assist however we can and it's something that we're really conscious of. So how many staff are at the uh, Q Plus Law Centre? Um, <laughs> given all the things I've talked about, you think it was a, <laughs> a big team, but there's only six of us. So there's um, three lawyers, myself, um, Joe, who's our senior lawyer, and then Kelly, who's our principal lawyer. Um, there's Ryan, who's our service director, Beth, who is our client uh, administration intake superstar. So most people will make contact with Beth first. Um, and then there's Koi, who's our um, legal education officer. So they'll do a lot of uh, going out to other communities and educating them on our service and also um, some subject matters in law as well. And I imagine you guys are preparing uh, information resources for the community. Yeah, very busy. Yeah, we've just um, launched our socials. So if you have TikTok or Instagram, you can search Q plus law and you'll find us there. Um, but yeah, infographs, all kinds of little things is um what Koi is sort of working on at the moment. So Tara, tell us about how you ended up at Q Plus Law. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, this may surprise a lot of people, but um, being trans and queer and a lawyer uh, sometimes can be a little bit overwhelming um, and a little bit vulnerable. And I think when I first started out in law, I wasn't really sure where I fit into the legal system myself, like having, I guess, a lot of those experiences that I um, talked about earlier. And this opportunity came up. Um, I was working in what I would say is like or adjacent work um, and I thought well you know Margaret I'll put my name in the hat um, and just see what what happens and I was yet yeah, very fortunate enough to have this opportunity um, and I think I just really want to make a difference like I think most people in our community do it's, I love queer people I love being queer um, and to be able to serve the community that I'm so passionate about was just a no-brainer for me. And I imagine this service is like a model for other states to follow as well. I hope so yeah I really hope so um, I mean Victoria's 
definitely probably one of the more progressive states. Um, so it would make sense that we're starting off something, but the other states, like people deserve access to um, justice across Australia. So it would be fantastic if other states followed suit. What recommend? I mean, I know you've only been going for a short time, but what recommendations might you make to government about future law reforms here in Victoria? I think it starts with sort of those grassroots listening to community. I think a lot of the time the queer community can be quite complicated because I think in nature we're sort of defined by what we're not. Um, And a lot of the time trying to make laws for something that is in and of itself undefinable can be very difficult. Um, So I think, yeah, just starting off with um, really listening to what people need, uh, looking at the differences between um, maybe how things are imagined and how they are practically experienced um, and going from there to start, you know, how can we do this better? Um, So I think, yeah, always grassroots approach for me. And it must be so positive for your clients to actually um, go and see you at the Pride Centre. First of all, you know, you don't really have any problem with people, you know, not knowing where you are because you're in this (laughs) great building, but also you're amongst the community, but you're amongst other services. So clients can potentially get health assistance uh, and all kinds of assistance from organisations within the Pride Centre. Um, That must be incredibly beneficial. Yeah, it's an incredible vibe, um, like going into a place and um, not being misgendered, everyone being uh, completely open, um, feeling that sense of comfort and safety. I've never really been um, in a professional setting, in an environment like that. Everyone is so passionate. Um, there's all kinds of things. There's if, if you haven't been, I'd really recommend going. So there's even the queer archives where you can look at like some really great queer art from you know eighty years ago, um, and newspapers and sound recordings and you know posters, badges. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And you know just documents. You know minutes from meetings from you know organisations that you know kind of did the groundwork that gave us you know decriminalisation. Yeah. So you've definitely. It sounds like you've been. I have, yeah. (laughs) I have. And just, you know, being in the community for decades and seeing how incredibly important law reform is for our community as a springboard for, you know, not just decriminalising us, but also breaking down stigma and also being a forum for community education. Yeah, and I think why we work with so many healthcare providers is because I think law and and your rights and how – your perception of how that law protects you has a direct impact on your mental health. So it would make sense for those two things to sort of exist in a space together. Um, So, yeah, so the Pride Centre, there's Thorn Harbour Health, um, there's the Monash um, Trans and Gender Diverse Clinic, um, there's a few others. Oh, there's like Q Life um, Switchboard who provide all this sort of free counselling services. It's, yeah, it's really, really... um, It feels very special, I think. Tara, how can people contact Q Plus Law? Yeah, so we've got um, a – I mean, you can Google Q Plus Law and it will come up with a few um, links. So there's a client intake form and um, an email address. If you want to give us a call, our phone number is 03-9968-1002. 
you can reach to us, reach out to us over email at qlawadmin at fls.org.au. I know a lot of that information was probably given quite quickly. Um, but yeah, if you have a look at Q plus law and just chuck it into Google, it, it'll come up. Um, and also you can just wander down to the Victorian Pride Centre and um, just pop in to see us. Tara Suamba from Q Plus Law. Thank you so much for popping into 3CR. It's been a real joy chatting with you and what a great service. Uh, Thank you so much. Thanks for having me and thanks for your support. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.